Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The late Bible teacher Harry Ironside was on a trolley car in Los Angeles when a rather strange-looking lady got on board and sat down beside him. She was dressed in what he described as red bandana handkerchiefs pieced together, with a shawl over her head and a lot of spangles on her forehead. As soon as she sat down, she asked Ironside if he would like to have his fortune told to him. Her fee was a quarter. Einstein asked her if she was sure that she could do it. He explained that he was scotch and he hated to part with a quarter if she could not deliver the goods. She looked a bit baffled, but then assured him that she could reveal his past, his present, and his future. Just give me the quarter and I will tell you all. Ironside said, it's really not necessary because I've had my fortune told already. I have a little book in my pocket and that tells me my past, my present and future. She said, you have a little book? Yes, said Ironside, it is absolutely infallible. Let me read it to you. He got out his New Testament and the fortune teller looked startled. He opened Ephesians chapter 2 and said, here's my past. He read verses 1, 2, and 3 about being dead in his trespasses and sins and living in the lusts of the flesh. The nervous fortune teller said, I don't care to hear anymore. But Ironside held her gently by the arm and said, But I want to tell you my present. He read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He made us alive together and seated us, raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. That's plenty, the woman said. I do not wish to hear any more. But Einstein said, there's more yet, and I won't charge you a quarter to hear it. Here's my future. And he read verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace towards us in Christ Jesus. By now, the woman was on her feet, and Einstein could not hold on to her arm any tighter, lest he be charged with assault. She fled down the aisle, saying, I took the wrong man, I took the wrong man. As we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, this is what we looked at, a past, a predicament. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were spiritually dead, we were enslaved to Satan. We were under the wrath of God. As I said last week, that was a negative message with no hope. So where does our hope come from? This is why we're going to study Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And this week, as we look at our present and our future, in the present, we are made alive, we are saved by grace, we are raised up with Christ, and we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. And we see our future in verse 7. So that his glory might be displayed in us for all time. So let's zoom down to verses 4 through 7 in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. I have three truths flowing out of this passage. First, God is the author of our salvation. Verses 4 and 5. 
Second, God raises up and seated us with Christ. Verse 6. The third, God saved us for a glorious display. Verse 7. So let's look at the first truth found in verses 4 and 5. God is the author of salvation. I'm reading verse 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. The verse begins with, but God. The word but is a contrasting conjunction. This points us to the gospel, which is God's intervention. It's something that comes from outside of us. It is God's astonishing work and amazing work. Before the grace of God sparked into our lives, we were far from God. Verses 1, 2, and 3 reads that. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were led by the course of this world. We were immersed in the lust of our flesh and of the mind. We were under the wrath of God. We were non-Christians, unbelievers. This was our state before coming to Christ. How could someone in such a desperate state get saved? How could someone who is spiritually dead become alive? How could someone living in the lusts and the passions of their lives become alive unto God, be raised and be seated with God in the heavenly places? This question can only be answered by understanding, but God. But God is the greatest words of hope that we want to hear. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 12, it says, we were separated from God. We were alienated, we were strangers, we were living without hope in this world. Without God in this world. And without God doing His work, we would continue. Present continues, tense. We would continue to be in a state of hopelessness. And as spiritually dead people, we were under God's wrath. I mean, we had no capacity whatsoever to, to seek after God, to understand spiritual things, to comprehend the things of the Bible, or to even believe the gospel. The gospel was foolishness. They couldn't understand them. They will not understand them because they're spiritually dead. Unsaved man is helpless to turn around. Friends, the man without Christ is spiritually dead. He's a cadaver. There's nothing that dead people can do but stink. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 gives us a glimmer of hope. But God, if it were not for God, there is no hope for the spiritually dead sinner. And so folks, when you look at your dear loved ones who are perishing without Christ, when you see and when you think about people that you've been praying for day in and day out, praying that God would be merciful to them, and they're just living a life hopeless in this world, desiring the things of this world. Don't be frustrated 
Because you need to remember that the God of the universe, the sovereign God, is the God who does wonderful things. But God, He will do an amazing work in His time, in the life of your dear one. And look up to that hope. And cherish that hope. Friends, as we talk about salvation... Salvation is not a joint project between God and man. It's not like God casts his vote and Satan casts his vote and now it's up to man to cast his vote. And God sitting up here with the fingers crossed and say, come on, cast your vote for me. It's not like God has done all he can and now the rest is upon the free will of man. We cannot decide. Because we are spiritually dead and spiritually dead people cannot decide about spiritual things. They can think about physical things because they are physically alive. Spiritually dead people need to be regenerated before they are able to decide. Until then they will flounder in darkness following the course of this world. Having no ability to decide. Doing the things of the flesh. Desiring the things of this world having no desire in scriptures, having no desire for God, having no desire for spiritual things, having no desire for the holiness and purity, and they'll just flounder their life in darkness. But God, but God in verse 7 means that God and God alone is the author of salvation. From top to bottom, from beginning to end, God is the author of salvation. God and nothing else but God is the cause of our salvation. Without God, we can do nothing. But with God, the equation changes. There is hope. If you turn with me to Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 19. Verses 16 through 26. You know the story about the rich young man. He came up to Jesus. He said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said, which one? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I believe it's a physical eye of the needle, literal eye of the needle. Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But when the disciples heard this, they said, Who then can be saved? And this is what I want you to read, folks. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can save people. God is the author of salvation. 
This is what the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. The, the angel did not say, Joseph, Jesus will try his best. He will die on the cross for their sins. But ultimately, that's all that Jesus can do. The sinner must change his stubborn will. All that Jesus can do is throw the rope out there. And it's up to the sinner to grab the rope. Folks, how can the sinner grab the rope when he's dead? Christianity is not what you and I do. Christianity is what God has done. That is why, but God is an important phrase in the Bible. The biblical view of salvation is Jesus alone saves. Let's go on to the next phrase. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy. The phrase being rich in mercy is the present tense. Indicating God's continual state of being merciful. We see three words in verse 4. Key words that strike us as we read it. It's the word mercy, is love, and is grace. Mercy is defined as God not giving us what we do deserve, which is judgment. And grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, and that is salvation. God, instead of dealing with us as wretched, miserable sinners deserving wrath and judgment, He deals with compassionate mercy. He's an infinite God with infinite mercy. Verse 4 continues to read, Because of His great love with which He loved us. It means on account of His great love or in order to satisfy His great love. Or to put it in different words, in order to demonstrate God's mercy, which was a result of His great love. Mercy flowing out of His love. We're not saved by God's love. We are saved on account of His mercy. God's mercy is a result of His great love. God's love is infinite. It's in large measure. It's agape love. It's, it's unconditional love. It's sacrificial love. It's, it's love demonstrated to undeserving sinners. You probably heard this. And if you heard this, you can put it on the side. It, the three kinds of love. One of the authors wrote that in a book. can't remember which one. Always used as illustration. Three kinds of love. The if kind of love. If you do this, then I'll love you. If you send me a birthday card for my birthday and wish me, then I will also do it. Then there is the because kind of love. Because you cook a great meal for me, I love you. Because you're so nice to me and so respectful to me and because you're so kind to me, I love you. But there is a third kind of love. And that's the inspired kind of love. It's even though you're a jerk, I still love you. And that's the love that we see of God the Father. Infinite, large in measure, unconditional, sacrificial. I don't know how to explain it. The only thing I can tell you, this is amazing love. And the Bible says that. 
In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, God's love is amazing. And this is what we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is what Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 reads. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. You see, when God came down to deliver Israel, He did not do it because they were deserving of His love. He did not redeem them because they were good. On the contrary, the Bible reads that they were a stiff-necked people. They were idolaters. But they were loved by God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God shows his love to us as while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was God's loving kindness and mercy and grace that made salvation possible. This is why we read in Psalm 103 and remind ourselves of Thanksgiving season. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Watch this. Who loved me and gave himself for me. This is God's amazing love. We love him. Because he first loved us. Let's move on to the next phrase there. In verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Meaning we were continually, that's the tense, we were continually in a state of spiritual death. We were walking death. A walking dead. And it is from this condition that we've been made alive. Being alive means we've been given spiritual life. Christ died physically. We were dead spiritually. Christ was raised physically from the grave. We are raised spiritually together with Christ. This is what Romans chapter 6 reads. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so as you read there in verse 5, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. He brought us out of our death, our spiritually dead condition. He made us alive together with Christ. That means what happened to Christ is what happened to us. And as if he's catching his breath there. He says, by the way, I want to tell you, by grace you've been saved. That's the doctrine of grace. You are saved by grace and by grace alone. Not of your works. And if not because of God's grace, we would have perished in our sins. Have you enjoyed the grace of God? Have you understood God's grace? We would be gracious to people around us. 
Now, gracious to people around us doesn't mean hiding the sin under the carpet and ignoring sin. That doesn't mean that. It would be gracious to come alongside and exhort someone when they're living in sin. The most gracious thing to do, the most loving thing to do. But we are able to understand grace. Because to whom much has been forgiven. Right? We've been forgiven much. As the parable of the man who was forgiven. He was forgiven 200,000 years of wages or 20,000 years of wages. He could never, ever repay that in his life. Never. But then he goes down and he sees a man who owed him three months of wages. And he put him into prison. Did he really understand God's saving grace? He did. And that's what? By grace you've been saved. What is true of Christ is true of us right now. So God is the author of salvation in verses 4 and 5. Let's move on to the next truth. And that's found in verse 6. So if you are in your Bibles, Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, God raised us up and seated us with Christ. What is true of Christ here, Paul says is physically. That means what happened physically to Christ is also true of us spiritually. Christ was physically raised from the dead and we are spiritually raised from the dead. Yes, but you know one day we will be raised physically from the dead as well. And we will be glorified with him. When we see him face to face, we will be like him. And that's the physical resurrection. And every one of us will be resurrected If you're a believer, you'll be resurrected to the resurrection of eternal life. If you're an unbeliever, folks, you will be resurrected, but you'll be resurrection to eternal judgment. Which resurrection do you want to believe, do you want to belong to? And Paul states in verse 6, he says, And raised us up and seated us with Christ in heaven. We were seated with Christ in heaven. Just like Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised, and now we are seated with Christ in heaven. Now I want you to contemplate on that a little more here. When Christ raised from the dead, by the way, when he died on the cross, he was taken down from the cross and he was buried in the grave. He was wrapped with cloths, uh, cloth around him, and he was buried in, and, and put away in the grave. And on the third day, he rose again. And as he rose again, we find that the, the, the cloth that wrapped around him was folded up and kept to the side. And Jesus came out of the grave and he was in his glorified body. And in the same way, we are risen. We have been raised from the dead, from spiritual deadness. We've come out of the grave. We have finished with spiritual death. We are dead to sin, and and now we are alive to God. Just as Christ is alive, we are alive, and we are alive to God, dead to sin. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, How can we continue in sin? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? Because we are risen with Christ, we are dead to sin. Does that make sense? 
Romans, and let me read Romans for you to, to get the flow of it. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, reads, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Meaning, not that we will not sin anymore, but that we will not be enslaved to sin. Not that we will be perfect, but we will no longer find our joy in the realm of sin. By the way, we'll be perfect only when we see Him face to face. Sin will not interest us anymore. We are no longer under the power of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer dominated by sin. We are no longer governed by sin. We are no longer characterized by sin. We are no longer controlled by sin. We are no longer dictated by sin. We are dead to the realm of sin. That's what it says. As someone said, it is not that you will not sin. It's not that you can't sin. It is you don't have to sin anymore. Because you're dead to sin. We are under new management. That's what it says. Previously, as spiritually dead people, we walked according to the course of this world. We fulfilled the lust of our flesh. We committed fornication, adultery, you name it, sexual immorality, debauchery, pride, arrogance, headstrong, jealousy. We walked according to the desires of the flesh. But now when we are in Christ, we are taken out of this world. We have come alive with Christ. We are delivered from this evil world. We are separated from this world. So we, although we are in this world, we are not of this world. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, verse 6 is saying. Now let's look at what this means. What does it mean we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Being seated with Christ in the heavenly places means you are no longer under the domain of Satan. Before we were enslaved to Satan, before we were in his kingdom, we were in the power of Satan, we were in the dominion of Satan, but now you're seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus. What else does it mean? It, it means we are no longer under the wrath of God. We belong to the kingdom of God. We are in his sphere. This is what Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 reads. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We belong there now. You say, how is that possible? Well, that's how we got to live our life. We are here, but we belong there. We are heavenly citizens. That's where we have our standing. A senator who passed away in the Congress once said, you must remember that in politics, how you stand depends on where you sit. Does that make sense? Being seated in the heavenlies means we are under the control of the Holy Spirit. In the glorious presence of our Lord. That is why Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 reads, You have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are eternally safe with Christ. Let me show you something really interesting. Would you please turn your Bibles to Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And as you turn there, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or the icon of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. Sitting down is a sign of completion. Do you see that? When a man has finished his work, what does he do? He sits down. And Christ sat down. There is no longer any labor but rest. And when you and I are seated next to Christ, what does that indicate? It indicates we have ceased from our labor as well. We find rest. We find Sabbath rest in Christ Jesus in his finished work on the cross, which he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And we can find our rest in Christ and Christ alone. So being seated in the heavenly places means you are rested where? In Christ. In Christ. Let's go to the last truth. The last truth is found in verse 7. God saved us for a glorious display. In other words, to showcase us for his glorious display. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2 reads, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul begins the, the phrase, so that in the coming ages. So what is the coming ages? This is the time when God will demonstrate kindness, and it's a present tense there. It indicates a continuous successive age. It includes the present and the future. The present age is the age that you're living in. The future, it includes the messianic age, when Christ is going to rule the earth for a thousand years. And after that, he's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. And we read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. And then we'll begin another age, the eternal state. And so Paul says, with that in mind, so that in the coming ages... He continues that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Means he would make known. The idea is to give outward proof. So why has God done all this? Why has he made us alive? Why has he raised us up with Christ? Why has he seated us with the heavenly places? In order that he might show the immeasurable or exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The world would see God's amazing grace and his mercy. We are a display, a showcase of his amazing mercy and kindness. There is an expression. It reads... When you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by himself. It is obvious that someone had to put the turtle up there. In a very real sense, Christians are turtles sitting on top of the fence post, put there by the grace of God. 
It is as if someone, when they ask God, you say you are loving and gracious, what is the proof? He says, well, look at the church. Look at my bride. Look at you people seated here, praising God. This is the proof that God is merciful and God is kind. This is God's exhibit. This is God's exhibit to the angels in heaven as they look forward to understand what is salvation? What is this gospel? And look at my church. Paul says, God has done all this so that he could give a demonstration or a public spectacle to all future ages of his redemptive work so that he could manifest his own glory. The chief reason why God has done all this is to put his glory on display. To showcase his glory. And we need to get this squared out in our minds. Somehow the evangelical church has turned it upside down. They have lost insight into the purpose of our salvation. And so they have boiled it down to a man-centered view of salvation. No, my friend, salvation is primarily for the glory of God. This is the teaching of the scriptures from beginning to end. It's all for the glory of God. Sole de gloria. God, glory to God and God alone. When I was growing up as a kid, I was an athlete. Uh, not a huge one. Not a... I, I would get awards for the events that I would run in, participated in, and my parents would display them in our living room as trophies that brought them credit. This is my son. See what a fine kid we have raised. And these are his achievements. I'm sure we have all done that, right? And God looks at the church and he tells the world, look at my mercy and my kindness. We are the exhibit of God. God's displaying us as his trophies in the age to come. This is the great truth you and I need to take hold of. That the almighty, everlasting, eternal God is vindicating himself and his holy nature. By what all, all that he has done in us. Jonathan Edwards said, God created the world and put us here. To further his glory. That's why we say we do all things for what? For the glory of God. Three truths that we have seen today. God is the author of salvation. God raised us up and seated us with Christ. God saved us for glorious display. So how does all this play into our lives? God raised us. God saved us. God raised us. God seated us with Christ. How has this impacted your life? Are you converted? Have you seen a transformation in your life? Is there visible proof in your life of your conversion? Is it objective for others to see? Not perfect. Because we'll never be perfect. First John 3, 3 says, when we see him, we'll be like him. Remember, it's a change from death to life, right? Spiritual death to life. Once I was dead, but now I'm alive. I become sensitive to God. I desire God. I love God. I seek after God. Now I'm no longer alive to sin. I'm dead to sin. And I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Before I was not interested in reading the Bible. 
But now I have a study, a deep desire to study the Bible. Before novels and books interested me, but now the Bible brings delight to me. I want to meditate on the Word of God. I want to memorize the Word of God. I want to study the Word of God. I want to delight in the Word of God. Folks, this is a sign of a man who is alive. Raised from spiritual death, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, having a new heart. He desires purity and holiness in his life. He is grieved on account of sin. He has a desire for prayer. And we all need to work at it. I don't want to disappoint you by saying this, but we all need to work at this. To be men and women of prayer. Our prayer life will never be the same again. And this is the hope we have, not because of what we've done, but because of but God. God is the one who empowers. God is the one who enables. God is the one who strengthens. Do you know Christ? Or are you running away from Christ? Is verses 4 through 7 your present condition? Keep in mind that time is running out. Every time you refuse to repent and you continue to sin, your hearts are getting harder and harder. I'm not saying that, beloved, the Bible, God's word says that in Hebrews chapter 3. Every time you reject Christ, there's a gradual hardening of the heart, a searing of the conscience. First Timothy chapter 4. It numbs you to the point of being past feeling. And it's a dangerous spiritual condition to be in. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2. He says, this is the time. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I urge you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, would you please turn to Christ? He's merciful. And he's kind. His love is amazing. Christina, longing to hear leave her a poor Brazilian neighborhood. Christina wanted to see the world. She was discontent with her with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for a young, attractive daughter, Christina's mother, Maria, hurriedly packed to go find her. On the way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing. Pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to go to the city. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will does things that were unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began a search for her daughter. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, 
any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And at each place, she left a picture taped on the bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. Come home. It wasn't long before both money and pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. A few weeks later, young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was gone. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for a secure pallet. Yet the little village was a long ways away, far away. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of a mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. And written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Christina did come home. Folks, today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ needs to be the Lord of your life. If you do not know Christ, this is the day. Don't harden your heart. The more you harden your heart, it's going to get harder and harder. And turn to Christ. Turn to the compassionate God. Turn to the kind God. Turn to the merciful God. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you. He will make you pure. He will clothe you with His righteousness. He will raise you up. And he will see to you in the heavenly places. Isn't that wonderful? Father, we thank you for the scriptures. They're always the truth. Because you speak and you are the truth. Father, we pray that while you prepare a place for us in heaven. That's what you said. I'm going to prepare a place for you. As you prepare a place for us, Lord, prepare us for that place. May we be men and women, boys and girls, who are living a life here, Lord, preparing ourselves to come to you, to be with you, to be, to be right next to you. Thank you, Lord, for the work you've done in our lives. And if you haven't done, it's because there are people in this room, Lord, that have not trusted in you as their Lord and Savior. Now, Father, you're doing a work in their lives as well. So we commit this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.